You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 7th of September, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, yet another twist in Brazil's troubled election. The far-right frontrunner in the presidential campaign is stabbed at a rally, which means one of the most popular choices is in hospital and the other is in jail. My Monocle colleagues Marcus Hippie, Melkon Charchoglian and Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including, speaking of far-right, Swedes are getting set to vote in their own general election, where a party, which has tried to shed its own white supremacist roots, is neck and neck with the center-left government over, you guessed it, immigration. Plus, we love a good trade fair here at Monocle. How about the world's largest garden fair in Cologne? What are the value of these gatherings? All that plus, we look ahead to a full week of broadcasting from our brand new bureau in Zurich. That's all to come on Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage. So welcome to Midori House, my guest today, gentlemen from the Monocle editorial floor, books writer Melkon Charchaglian, radio host and producer Marcus Hippie, and M24 associate producer Fernando Agusso Pacheco. Welcome all to the program and happy Friday. A bit of a crazy week for all of us, I believe. An even crazier week in Brazil, however, where one of the frontrunners in the presidential race was stabbed in one of his rallies. Commentators in Brazil are already saying that the election post-stabbing will be a very different one, more polarized than ever. The other presidential candidates decided not to campaign over the weekend out of respect for Jair Bolsonaro. Faye, let's start with you. Certainly one of the most complicated elections in Brazil uh, we can remember with Lula still in jail, Bolsonaro now stabbed. Really, what else can happen? Well, very much so. I mean, uh, you know, when Brazil uh, got democracy back uh, in 1989, since then elections have been, you know, fairly peaceful and fairly straightforward, if I may be honest with you. Uh, but, you know, just the fact that the favorite uh, to win was Lula and he was in jail and was all this kind of confusion if you could be the candidate or not, that was already saying that this mm. election would be not your usual straightforward one. Uh, well, Lula is still in jail and we still have... They, the Workers' Party still haven't decided what to do. Right. And then you have Jair Bolsonaro with, when Lula is out of the race, Jair Bolsonaro, you know, he takes the lead in, in the polling. I mean, he's a very controversial candidate. I mean, uh, some of his speeches are quite violent. So some people are even saying, mm. you, know, he, you know, in some ways he attracted uh, this uh, sort of violence. But it, it was fairly shocking, I mean, the attack. I mean, it, it didn't happen since uh, Brazil's redemocratization. We never had an, such an attack in yeah. a presidential candidate. So in a way, it's quite scary and I think all the other candidates are saying well this could have happened to me in a way as well uh, and, and you know he had a very complicated surgery he's still in hospital now I think he's moved to a hospital in Sao Paulo uh, from the latest reports and and of course I mean his his uh, supporters are incredibly shocked and uh, and I think there'll be a wave of sympathy towards uh, mm. the candidate. Mel, this is quite a dark turn in the election that seemed to take a long time to really get serious. We had Lula as the front runner, even though it was quite clear that he would not be able to run. Do you think this stabbing is, is really going to really alter the road that we're going down on this election? Well, I think so. I mean, according to one of the major uh, polls, it sees 
if Lula can run, his replacement, Fernando Haddad, mm. uh, would be Bolsonaro's uh, opponent. And this poll only sees him, Haddad, winning by one point. And obviously that, can, that could easily go either way. This stabbing, I think, will strengthen Bolsonaro's position. It perfectly adds to his regalia as a military man. And, you know, uh, effectively to survive something like this, it shows, you know, he's a strong, he's a strong man. He's a candidate who can leave, lead the country. It, 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 it kind of, it adds to the mystique of his uh, political personality. Marcus, uh, would you, uh, would you agree with that? Will this sort of uh, boost his popularity out of sympathy, maybe? Absolutely, absolutely. And also, let's remember that one of his main election themes has been violence and crime. So basically, mm-hmm. I think his supporters feel like they're being kind of, you know, they, they feel even more strongly about the issue. But one thing I, I wanted to point out, one thing I was wondering earlier today, I was just thinking about this situation, is that the front runner Lula, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, is, is probably not running because he's in prison. And at the same time, one of his main contestants, Jair Bolsonaro, is now probably going to be in hospital bed. That is such, such a strange situation. This is something we definitely didn't see happening in Brazil. Well, we should point out that um, actually Lula yesterday lost to Supreme Court appeals, and it looks now, as we say, his hand-picked successor, uh, Fernando Haddad, as we pointed out, is going to be the one leading the Workers' Party. Will that shift things now that we really have a known candidate for uh, a quite popular party? It's funny because at the beginning, when people start talking about the election, I was confident that when, you know, when the Workers' Party decided on Fernando Haddad, he would go to the second round for sure, Mm. just because he's been supported by Lula. But I think the Workers' Party left a little bit too late in a way, because, you know, you have not only Bolsonaro, but we have other candidates polling fairly well, like Ciro Gomes, he's a center-left candidate. We have environmentalist Marina Silva. So, you know, you have Bolsonaro. I think he's certainly going to the second round, especially after the stabbing. And then we have lots of other candidates that has a chance to go there. So I'm not sure at, on, at this time that Fernando Haddad is so guaranteed. Mm. I think the Workers' Party may have delayed a little bit uh, too much, in my opinion, in a way. Yeah, and I wonder what comes of uh, the actual stabbing. What we what we make of that event, and if it'll change things there. I mean, it was it was quite gripping, dramatic. The the actual video it reminded me of that stabbing at the the Rolling Stones concert at Altamont, which by the Hell's Angels, which was just this crazy uh, dramatic video. Do you think that'll change the way people pull at all, Mel? I think people will be a little more scared for yeah. sure. Um, because, it, you know, in the video, he's kind of being lift, lifted up on supporters' shoulders and he's waving to everyone. And there isn't a conspicuous amount of security around him, which suggests, as you said, there's no real mentality that we must be uh, careful about violence at, um, at you know, polling events, etc. So I think people will be much more careful by going out. Reuters has um, supposedly said that the, the, the stab or the, the man accused of stabbing him is mentally deranged, therefore it's an anomaly, but still you can never be too certain. And it's interesting uh, about this man. I mean, he is indeed a, a mentally unstable, but apparently f- from 2007 to 2014, he was a member of a far-left party. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that Bolsonaro's campaign will use this against uh, candidates like the Workers' Party one saying, well, you have people like this, you know, that uh, came and almost tried to kill me in a way. 
mm. as well. Marcus, what do you what do you make of the uh, the actual way that we see these campaign rallies playing out? It seems, maybe it's a, a Latin America thing. I don't know. It seems quite different in Europe and other places where people get very close to these candidates, and, and it seems a very important part of it, like being out there with the people. You see that a lot in Mexico and other places as well. I think it's very important to give the impression that you are you you are close to the people. You are one of them. But actually, when I was I saw this video. I saw this video of the stabbing last night when it happened, and I was just wondering what on earth was going on over there. How on earth? I know he had what fifteen security personnel over there around him, but where were they? Where were they? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like it was like basically this politician was in the middle of a sea of people, and they got too close to him. I know that, for example, where I come from in the Nordic region in Scandinavia, there's been there has been or was a big discussion over the safety of politicians. Just look at Sweden. Olaf Palme, prime minister, was murdered in 1986. Mm. Anna Lind, their interior minister, was killed in the early noughties. And as, as as a result of that, kind of in that region, the the way people thought about politicians' safety changed. And there is there is more effort now to guarantee that nothing like that could happen again. But maybe, I don't know, Fernando, what do you think about the thinking in Brazil? How was this possible? Well, the problem is, I mean, he does have 50 security guards. I mean, he wears sometimes a bulletproof vest as well. But I think it's something about his character. He's a very erratic man. So I don't think he listened to what his bodyguards are saying. So, I mean, part of his kind of charisma for a segment of Brazilian society is the fact that he goes to the street, he carries babies, you know, he's a, he's a bit of a of a shower in that sense. And but, but I mean, after what happened, I'm sure he'll be more careful in a way because I'm, I mean, it's it, nobody wants to lose its life in such a, mm. such an attack. Faye, just lastly here, I wonder, uh, we've talked about uh, other candidates deciding to, to take some days off, take the weekend off from campaigning out of respect. But how do you how do you see the campaigning picking up after the weekend? Well, there'll be an interesting one to see because a lot of lot of those other candidates they were being very they were attacking Bolsonaro and his policies mm. and very rightly so because let's not forget he's a far right man with with despicable views you know uh, with racist views homophobic views but I think they'll probably be a bit more careful the way they attack him in a way at least for the next week mm. I presume and then I think perhaps the campaign will, will go back to normality. That's just the question. <laughs> Normal if we can ever classify it that way. Uh, I want to head uh, to Sweden now, where the center-right-left governing bloc holds a razor-thin lead over the four-party center-right alliance. This ahead of Sunday's general election. This is according to the latest poll, which does also show both sides are short of a majority, but that the far-right Sweden Democrats could make the largest gains and could form the largest single party as well. Both center-left and center-right blocs could take the majority if they worked with the Sweden Democrats, who have a checkered neo-Nazi past. Both blocs have clearly ruled that out. Mel, let's start with you here. In examples across Europe, the rise of the right narrative is well known. But in this case, where we look destined for political deadlock, do you see either side actually speaking to the far right, actually negotiating? Well, the, so the the social democrats mm. who are currently in power have ruled out that possibility. Um, I mean, the most predictable outcome is that there won't be a single party with a majority large enough to rule. Yeah. So there will have to be some cooperation. Social Democrats have ruled that out. The center-right alliance have also ruled that out. But at the same time, the center-right has said, we cannot think of the Sweden Democrats as a pestilence passing through the mm -hmm. parliament. This is this is a, a political movement that's going to stick around because it's a manifestation 
of the discontent of the people. Uh, so while they don't want to collaborate, they're still saying we, we, we kind of have to acknowledge their existence. Right. There's some sort of paradox there. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, they, they probably will have to. It'll just be a case of how much can we concede to them without compromising our own stance. A bit of a different situation, but do you see a long period of, of negotiation as we saw in Germany where it took a long time to just form a government? I think so, because it will come down to a question of do we make uh, effectively policy concessions which the centre-right and mm. social democrats have both ruled out, or do we put them into positions of power where they can create actual legislation? That's also incredibly dangerous. I mean, it, it allows you to sort of control that person in office, but uh, still it opens up another avenue of disasters. In the same case, for example, in Italy, where you have uh, you know, a right-wing candidate now as interior minister forming immigration policy. Mm. And that's exactly what Sweden wants to avoid. Uh, Marcus, as I said, it seems we have seen this movie before. Italy, Poland, Hungary, just a few countries shifting to the right. I know you talk about Swedish politics all the time with your friends. Uh, do you actually see this as a concrete shift in Sweden? I think I think people's views are, are definitely changing. What I was going to say earlier is that I quite appreciate the other parties in Sweden who have actually been very determined in not having discussions with the mm. Sweden Democrats because of their neo-Nazi past. But obviously, like I think it's been massively due to the wave of migrants we saw a couple of years ago. That's been changing people's views on migration in many, many European countries. We're talking about the same thing, indeed, with Sweden or with Italy or all the other countries you mentioned over there. But another point I would like to make is that also the, the internal landscape of, of Swedish parties has been changing. The Social Democrats have been basically being the major party, building Sweden into the country we know today. They are mostly responsible for creating the welfare state we know today. They created the public health care. They were responsible for the education system. They were responsible for, for all the benefits and all the money you get from the government to create a good life and get perfect opportunities in your life. And all of a sudden, this party is finding itself having big problems because... As you know, as we as I mentioned, we've seen migrants coming into the country that mm. boosts the right wing's popularity. But at the same time, we've seen a decline of blue collar workplaces where unions and centre left political parties traditionally built loyalty by defending workers' rights. That's mm. not as important anymore because the jobs are changing. So as a result, they have less voters and they try to find new ways of survival. And I don't know where this all goes to. We don't mm. know what to expect from the future. How how the social democratic party is going to survive this? Uh, Fernando, facing an immigration crisis in 2015, as we've said, Sweden opened its doors to refugees and newcomers only to slam the border shut after a backlash. Do you see this as a one-issue election, or is this a case of the media only focusing on, on the loudest people screaming the populists? Well, from what I can see as an outsider, I do think immigration is a big topic in mm -hmm. the campaign. And, and it's interesting in Sweden because they were very you know, generous indeed. I think they received more uh, in, you know, immigrants and, and asylum seekers than any other European country. Uh, but, but, but the problem is that, that, what, that I feel in Sweden, in cities like Malmo, for example, uh, the immigrants, they all live uh, in, a, in, a, in a ghetto in the suburbs of the city, very much so. So it's still very much divided. So I think what Sweden didn't do very well, it's integrate mm. uh, these immigrants into society. So I think they should perhaps, uh, you know, change a few things here and there in the way they treat those immigrants, perhaps allowing them to work and not only use the welfare state and ju just being there. Do you know what I mean? So I, th mm. I think a, a little reshuffle uh, in, in this law would, would be very helpful and be beneficial for the country. Can I also say that I think it's also about city planning in this case. 
think it's interesting that in my home country, Finland, Malmö is often raised as a warning example mm. of migration going wrong. And I think it sounds like First of all, I think Malmo has been exaggerated in some aspects. It's not quite quite as as bad as as we often make out of it. But also at the same time, it's true that they have ghettos over there. They have places where you, what ninety percent, ninety five percent of people have come from elsewhere, don't speak good Swedish, for example. And I think that's also an issue. Like you know, other countries, Sweden as well, should learn from that. How to build areas so that you don't get this kind of places. And that's something Finland, for example, is trying to learn at the moment. Do you think that's a case of being overwhelmed or just bad policy that that didn't put uh, you know the right planning in place I think it's bad I think it's bad policy I don't I don't like basically I think I think that's something many Nordic countries have realized that their approach to migration has maybe been a little bit naive. Remember, these countries don't have that long history with migration as countries such as the US, France or the UK have. Finland got its first refugees in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Let's remember that. Sweden a bit earlier. But I think it's it's basically, you just need to kind of, I think it's also about learning curve. I think it's yeah. also about realizing what happens when people who don't speak your country's language and may not be familiar with your country's culture what happens when they come there and like what the normal normal route is and you know how it all works and mm. i guess maybe swedish politicians didn't realize that you know you may actually all of a sudden realize you have ghettos in some cities mel there are other similarities to the wave of populist parties shaking up elections uh, in europe center right parties like in sweden losing support to radical anti-immigration populist movements on the very far right and then the more moderate right wing uh, right of center parties are having to shift their policy um, is that a dangerous thing are they just going to backtrack once the the polls are, are over or well i'm not sure what will happen when the poll when the you know when the actual vote is is done yeah. but yes you're right they are having to 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 shift their policy mm. further to the right or you know in another in other examples further to the left to mm. appeal to the public because as you said it's a case of who is screaming the loudest mm. if immigration is the main concern and you know the Swedish Democrats have the most vocal and the most hardline solution uh, anything in the middle will be far less appealing to someone who wants a quick resolution right. so that's why this uh, you know the 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 center alliance in Sweden has kind of been f- lost a little bit in the conversation. It's now a question of a showdown between the Social Democrats and the Sweden Democrats. But people mustn't forget that that's not the case. Right. It's not as clear cut as that. Marcus, I don't want to cast you as an expert on politics in all Nordic countries, uh, but is this election campaign comparable to other uh, political situations we've seen in in the Nordic countries, in Scandinavia? I guess the Sweden Democrats are quite extreme as a political movement. If I look at what's happening in what's what's happened in Finland even is that we have kind of a softer right-wing party over there as well that actually got into the government and as a result they totally lost their popularity like you know people realized that what they were talking about actually was not something that can work in real life a lot of promises but not much substance mm. that party broke into two and basically it's at the moment they do have a couple of ministerial posts but they don't have power at all um, another example maybe from Denmark maybe a bit more scary one over there um, we saw a pretty similar situation with the Danish People's Party that's 
that is that is that is propping up the government at the moment and well we've seen what's been happening in in Denmark we've seen draconian immigration rules mm. there's a boost in euroscepticism and so forth so i think Denmark is the more warning example in this case well such an interesting case and we will be keeping an eye on that election which does place uh, take place on sunday you are listening to Midori House here with me Fernando Augusto Pacheco Melkon Charchaglian and Marcus Hippie coming up next the allure if any and value of trade fairs. Weighing in at almost 400 pages, the Monocle Guide to Cozy Homes is packed with everything you need to know about making a great place to live. The book is filled with handsome residences and all the contacts you need to make a home that will last a lifetime. And it's a book that celebrates the people who know homes should be able to cope with kids, dogs and a few scuff marks too. It's a book that knows a home is only as good as the community it's in. And it's a book that takes you through the front doors of everything from mountain hideaways to modernist towers. So be cosy and buy your copy today at monocle.com. Welcome back to Midori House. Still with me, Marcus Hippie, Melcon Chertroglin, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now it's time to discuss something that Monocle covers the whole year round. Trade shows this week in Cologne, the world's largest gardening fair. A delight for garden lovers. With this in mind, I, uh, you know, want to speak to my fellow colleagues here about trade fairs. Some they may have covered for Monocle 24 or the magazine and that uh, they've enjoyed sharing with others. Uh, Faye, let's start with you. Well, do, you, do you want to know? I've covered quite a few for Monaco, actually. Okay. I've been to uh, Frankfurt Book Fair as well, which is, you know, a, you know, a trade fair about books and magazines, anything in print, which was, it was delicious being there because, you know, it's, it's huge. I mean, mm. I, I think you need m- definitely more than a day, uh, you know, if you want to visit all the stands. Uh, but I've got to tell you, Dana, there's been a field that I think Monaco should invite me for next year, at least. I did my little <laughs> research. I think I would love to go to the ISM in Cologne, which is a trade fair for sweets and snacks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and apparently it's the biggest in the world. Can you imagine? Because, <laughs> I, I mean, knowing me, I mean, you, you know, I always have my snacks in, in, yeah. you know, in my desk and I like very international ones as well. I want to know, you know, what the Armenians are doing, what the Japanese are doing when it comes to sweets as well. So, um, yeah. Can you imagine the state of that conference? Yeah. <laughs> massive sugar high followed by total lack of energy. Exactly. I'll be a little bit fatter, but yeah. that's okay. Is this where they introduce new sweets? Is that how it works? Yes. I mean, come on, it's a massive mm. market mm. as well. And I'm sure, you know, there'll be a new line for diet mm. sweets as well, because unfortunately, yeah, people are cutting out on sugar. The one and only trade fair I've been to is Radio Days, which was fascinating in, uh, in Vienna this past spring. Well, it was kind of winter still there. It was freezing. Uh, but it was both uh, sort of a, a talking shop, a, a summit, and trade fair, which I found an interesting mix, right? You're getting a little bit of both people trying to sell you stuff and, you know, a discussion about the state of uh, our industry, which is quite uh, quite interesting. Uh, Mel, any uh, favorite trade fairs for you? Well, I've, I've never had the privilege of going to uh, a, a trade fair for Monocle, sort of like a frat initiation here, <laughs> which I've not yet gone through. But um, a fellow journalist friend of mine uh, I think is at a trade fair right now. Was there recently? Mm. It's the the largest lizard fair in Europe, um, <laughs> reptile fair. Reptile fair. It takes place in Dortmund, Amazing. and apparently you get there and they're showing all these. You can't have anything <clears throat> venomous, or like oh, guys. Yeah. But um, and apparently they're showing all these enormous boa constrictors and you know savanna monitors, etc. But the real 
the real deals go down in the hotels and the parking lots afterwards. Okay. Because that's when they get out the endangered for the species yeah. for the collectors. So they're going undercover pretending to be experts wanting to buy some endangered species. And they're going to film it and try to make a documentary and, you know, oust some... Why not yeah. just have a heroin fair then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you need the context <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, how about you, Marcus? I've, I've, I'm, I'm a trade fair specialist. Yeah. I've done quite a few, and I've learned that whenever I go to Frankfurt to miss the Frankfurt conference, it's like you need to buy good shoes. You need to go have trainers. So much walking. I've been to um, Frankfurt Book Fair as Fernando. I've been to IAA Motor Show, which is the world's largest automobile expo. An amazing place. It's it's really really exciting. I think that should be that must be one of my favorites. I didn't even realize how much I enjoyed cars until I went to IAA. Really? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's amazing. Like all these massive companies are showing off with what they have. And if I could choose where to go, I've got a friend who went to a Christmas light expo in Germany. <laughs> I think that's quite something. I, I, I was trying to Google the name of that quickly. I'm, I'm not sure if it's this one I found. There's Christmas World taking place in Frankfurt. That's one of the things Christmas takes place in January, by the way, if you want to stay in the Christmas mood. Okay. I would love to attend because there are trends in Christmas lights. Some years, you know, that colder lights a bit more on trend and sometimes the, the more And you can know 11 colors. months in advance. Ex of course. <laughs> Somebody's already sending me Christmas emails, press releases. Leave me alone. Yeah. Uh, no, it's only September. Well, I'm going to campaign to go to Eurobike, also in Germany, the biggest bicycle uh, trade show in the world. Also where they show off all the brand new technology in bikes for the years ahead. And I know everyone at Monocle will be rolling their eyes because anything to do with bikes <laughs> comes back to me. And they're not always all my ideas, but Mel, jump in. I just uh, want to tell a quick anecdote for our listeners. I remember when we, uh, we pranked our designer to Nolan Giles and convinced him <laughs> that he had to divert himself, I think, from Paris to Geneva to go to a made-up doorknob fair. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, okay, I know we love design, but I didn't realize that we're that into design. Yeah. Doorknobs, okay, right, yeah. what section of the magazine is this for? Yeah. And I think he was about to buy his tickets and head to Geneva before we fired off another email stopping mm -hmm. him. I think, yeah, Nolan and Jamie uh, get the best invites for all the big uh, fashion design fairs. That all the doorknobs. All the doorknob <laughs> fairs that are, that are out there. Well, uh, finally, let's turn our attention uh, briefly uh, to Zurich. Next week, Monocle 24 will be broadcasting many of our live daily news programs from our brand new Swiss Bureau. Marcus, I feel as if you and I were just in Zurich for a hectic yet fun week of work that was about two months ago for our quality of life conference are you uh ready to go back i think i am now i think I, this yeah. week i am ready to go back next week i'm ready to go back i think it took a bit of time to recover after the quality of life conference mm. to be honest um switzerland zurich obviously an amazing city um i feel like i'm repeating these same phrases about yeah. what's great about zurich <laughs> it's like i'm like we have to go to the lake and we have to swim this time i will definitely remember to take my swimming trunks yeah. with me they have a lake they have a lake <laughs> and uh but i think i think in order to get kind of like a different vibe to I know you are going there as, mm -hmm. as well, Daniel. I think we should swap roles. And this time, you could be the one enjoying the Swiss nice life yeah. in Zurich. You go out in the evening. I'll find a bike from somewhere, go cycling in the morning <laughs> at four o'clock. That was exactly the roles last time. Me going to bed, going cycling, and Marcus 
enjoying painting the town. Mel, uh, we've as well recently published a Zurich, Geneva, and Basel book as part of the Monocle Travel Guide series. Uh, did you get a chance to uh, do any research on Zurich? Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to Zurich. I oh, went no. to I went to Basel, okay. which is very interesting. Uh, but it wasn't wasn't quite as exciting as Zurich. It's not as big a city. Um, but I think all three cities. The, the you know the role of the guide was to dispel the misconceptions that it's just you know a place of business and, yeah. and incredibly wealthy people. There's so much going on there. Design, amazing cycling, yeah. uh, huge culture hub, brilliant food and drink as well. And you can swim. And you can swim. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's the lake. And it was my first love affair as well. There. Really? 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 Tell us more. Oh. It was ever my first <laughs> kiss. No, in, in a man, it was in Zurich. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, interesting. Wait, was this interesting. like was this like two weeks ago? Are we talking <laughs> no, 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 no. ten years ago. Okay. Yeah, eight, more. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Right. It's a city of full of surprises. Exactly. Yeah. The ratings just went way up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. How do we continue from this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to show it. I agree with you guys. I mean, yeah. Zurich, <laughs> it's such a wonderful city. Yeah. Well, yeah, last uh, last time when we had our quality of life conference, the after party was a bit nuts. And I will say I left slightly earlier than Marcus and, and walked home back to the hotel, uh, which was fantastic. But I walked... Uh, inadvertently right through the red light district which somebody mm. told which people had <laughs> told me which people had told me existed and then I was like whoa <laughs> this is a bit different than you would expect from Switzerland but uh, Fernando you know the value of getting out of the the, the London studio or atmosphere here and brag- <laughs> broadcasting from other places it brings so much value to what we do doesn't it no absolutely and for them even even in, in a city like London uh, the, the show I produced the stack mm-hmm. this time we recorded uh, at the London Art Book Fair I mean it was in East London so so a yeah. couple of miles away from the office. But but it, I, I think it was so kind of delightful. You know, you don't even need to go to another country, but mm. it's nice, you know, to go outside and take your Morans with you and do some nice interviews around. And to, and to mention the work aspects briefly, so we are going to be broadcasting Monday's edition of The Briefing from their Tuesday's edition of The Globalist. And I think briefing as well, there is much happening in Zurich next week. And we will have a special edition of Midori House as well. Two live events for us. Uh, subscribers and friends of Monocle as well. Lots going on from Zurich, so do uh, tune into Monocle 24 all throughout uh, next week uh, coming. Marcus, you've got to get some rest, and so do I, before we pack up and, and head away. That uh, does, however, bring us to the end of today's show. Marcus Hippie, Melkon Churchoglin, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thanks for joining us on Majority House. Today's show produced and researched by Faye and Anna Svetska, our studio manager, Christy Evans. More music next with Marcus, and then at 1900 hours, even more Marcus, when he brings you the latest edition of The Menu. We'll have more on the day's top stories with Paul Osborne on the Monocle Daily. That's 2200 London time, 5 p.m. in Toronto. Midori House back at the same time on Monday, 1800 London time. And as I mentioned, join us Wednesday for a very special edition of Midori House, including some familiar Monocle names live from our bureau in Zurich. On on behalf of Mel, Marcus, Fernando, and myself, Daniel Beich, thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend and goodbye.